Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 52. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. This week, Emperor's New Groove, another one of these post-Disney Renaissance animated classics. We tackled Hercules last week. We're doing this one today because they've actually been getting a lot of play recently, both of them almost in equal measure. Yeah, nothing has officially been announced with regards to a live-action remake, which is pretty surprising considering how much information they put out at the D23 Expo over the weekend. I thought this was going to be the surprise, maybe. So now a lot of people did, because about two weeks ago, David Spade posted a video on his social media of a live-action talking llama and pulled it down almost as quickly. I can't find it anywhere. And that led the conspiracy theorists to believe that we were getting an announcement. But, I mean, as of this weekend, it wasn't meant to be. I can see where you would jump to that conclusion, but I'm wondering if it was purely coincidence that he posted the llama and maybe Disney made him take it down. I I didn't see the video. It could have been promo because he does have a new talk show coming out. It's going to be a late night show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just passed the poster for it in pen today. See, that I could tune into. His snarkiness, for, for a talk show, I can get into it. By and large, I've just not been a tremendous fan of a lot of the movies where he's had a starring role. I always liked him more as like the straight man. Like when he was doing his movies with Chris Farley, those I loved. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen Joe Dirt, probably never will. Um, But I feel like he'd be more relatable as a talk show host as opposed to even some of the characters that he did on SNL. You know why? Because I think that on top of being snarky, he is very intelligent. Yeah. So I think that when you're looking for somebody in a talk show host that's going to call somebody out, he's somebody that can do it intelligently with an attitude, but still be funny. Because most of the time it'll go over their head. Yeah, exactly. That's where his humor comes from. Yeah. Um, Was this one big in your house? No. So the funny story is that I kind of saw this movie for the first time by accident. I was 16 years old. I want to say I was watching a football game. It was either a football game or a hockey game. I was at home with the flu. In fact, I had 104 fever, and my parents nearly had to take me to the emergency room. Yeah. I got thrown in an ice bath to bring my temperature down because I couldn't walk. (laughs) I can laugh about it now. Um, Yeah, that's pretty awful. At the time... I had no energy, and whatever sporting event I was watching ended. And, like, the wonderful world of Disney or Disney Sunday movie, whatever it was that was programmed at the time on ABC, came on after, and they were showing this. And it was, like, two years after its theatrical release, and I said, I don't want to watch this. I have no interest in it. But I lacked the physical strength to get up and grab the remote control because it was not on the nightstand. It was on my dresser. So by default, I just laid there and watched this movie. You're really making a strong case for it. I've not given my review yet. <laughs> that's, that's awful. My first viewing was a lot more normal in comparison 
we went as a family to the movies to go see it. With your popcorn and your Coca-Cola <laughs> and your air conditioning and your cushy chair. You and your fancy popcorn. No, it was <laughs> like you're it was me to be hospitalized. and Robitussin and Pepto-Bismol and Clorox and anything else they were going to give me that was going to kill the flu that I had. Oh, my gosh. So needless to say, you had a better disposition about yourself than I did going into even watching this film. Yeah. And uh, following our theatrical viewing of it, my brother was really into this one. I can't remember. I don't think we had the DVD of it, but I remember it being very quotable. Interesting. Yeah. So this must have been one of those things where it was like you guys would rent it at the video store constantly. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I set myself up for that one. Everybody had that one. That, like, either it was the library or the video store. Usually it was the library because you could get it for free. Mine was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I literally took that out of the library every day for a month and a half to the point where the librarian had to say to my mother, maybe you should just buy him the VHS because (laughs) we never have it. That's how we ended up with a lot of our DVDs. I'm was sure. when, yeah, the rental fees added up to more than the actual cost of a DVD. Well, that's the thing. In, in a video store, there used to be things called video stores. They didn't mind that you were doing it on the rental fee. When I was getting it for free, and then they were getting complaints that they didn't have the movie because I, was, I basically owned it for free. You broke the system. They had something to say about it. <laughs> they actually would not rent us another VHS tape. Unless I returned Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's crazy. And you're holding this DVD hostage. <laughs> it wasn't even. It was a VHS tape. Yeah. VHS hostage, I should say. Held it hostage. Well, anyway, I think uh, we should just, before we, before we ramble on about how many movies we held hostage from the video store <laughs> and the library. Maybe it's time that we finally jump into the plot and the story of the movie that, for a time, your family held hostage, Emperor's New Groove. In the hills of Machu Picchu, we meet Cusco, an emperor who loves to dance and woe betide anyone who throws off his groove. One day, while Cusco is off grooving, his advisor, Isma sits on his throne, advising in a thinly veiled attempt to help him while secretly trying to take over. When Cusco catches Isma, he fires her immediately, which is perfect because now she doesn't have to be so subtle. Isma and her henchman, Kronk, set to work immediately on poisoning Cusco while he meets with Pacha, the head villager. Cusco tells Pacha his plans to construct Cuscotopia, his summer home right on top of the hill where Pacha lives. Pacha is dismissed, and Cusco sits down to a dinner made by Chef Kronk, another thinly veiled attempt from Yzma to make amends but actually to kill him. Due to Kronk's Kronkness, Cusco drinks a potion rather than the poison and is turned into a llama. Tasked with finishing the job, Kronk removes Cusco from the palace by way of Pacha, who travels home not knowing his cart is heavy with one llama. Back at home, Pacha is greeted by his pregnant wife and two children and can't bring himself to tell them that their home will be destroyed. So he goes to put away his actual llama and discovers Cusco, who is completely unaware of his predicament. Once Cusco realizes what is going on, he blames Pacha for it and demands he return Cusco back to the palace. Pacha uses this as a bargaining chip to save his home and begins the treacherous journey back the next morning. On their way, they encounter jaguars and scorpions and bats, oh my, and despite Cusco's rudeness and unwillingness to trust Pacha, they figure out a way to work together, just in time for Yzma to connect the... Through a series of narrow escapes, Cusco and Pacha make it back to the palace, find Yzma's 
human potion, which is taken and taken back in a classic Disney snatch and grab, Cusco returns to his grooving self while inadvertently transforming Yzma into a cat. After everything Pacha is done, Cusco decided to not only relocate Cuscotopia, but share it with Pacha and his family, and they all live cronkily ever after. This movie, I didn't think on the surface, was a controversial film. But it in fact was, and that was part of our motivation in choosing this movie for this week, because this movie was basically in production hell. It went through rewrite after rewrite after rewrite, and we stumbled across a documentary called The Sweatbox, which was all about how they built this movie up, tore it back down, rebuilt it, fired the director, and, and basically changed everything. For Even changed a majority of the cast. To a point where Sting pieced out. Yeah, so originally they hired Sting to write six songs for the movie. This was after Elton John and Tim Rice had written the songs for The Lion King, and obviously Mencken and Ashman had their slew of hits between Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Little, Little Mermaid, Mermaid, right? And part of their motivation in changing the script, other than the fact that the studio heads didn't really like where the movie was going, was we talked last week about how Hercules was lighthearted, it was a straight comedy, it was not a musical, and it did very well, versus the more epic adventures and the very serious Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame, which for all intents and purposes, at least in the eyes of Disney, underperformed. So again, they wanted to play it safe and do a straight comedy here. What's amazing to me is that this film went through so many changes. When they had initially released it, I thought that it was just a retelling of The Emperor's New Clothes. Right. And, you know, I can appreciate that because they were kind of, I don't want to say out of fairy tales at this point, but they were going away from fairy tales. You know, they started doing things, obviously, like Hercules, which was based in Greek mythology. They did Hunchback, which was based off a book, but not, obviously, your traditional damsel in distress movie. Right. They did Pocahontas, which is based in reality. So I thought this just was kind of another departure from the princess movie. Um, But it wasn't supposed to be that at all. It wasn't a retelling of any story. It's just that they made so many changes, it came completely full circle, and now there's just similarities to Emperor's New Clothes. So, yes. And originally, the title of the film was Kingdom of the Sun. Yes. And then it changed to Kingdom in the Sun. Whoa. (laughs) Hey, now. If it was... If it was a reinterpretation of anything, you could make a case for the prince and the pauper. Right. Because originally, the the idea was that Cusco and Pacha were lookalikes, and they swapped places, and Pacha was a 16-year-old boy, basically the same age as Cusco, a year younger than Cusco. Right, and the idea was that he would sit on the throne and the real emperor is kind of like feeding him lines and telling him what to do so that he doesn't have to do all the work himself. Right. And he can go off and do whatever while there is a body in place on the throne. Yeah, and Sting had written some really good music, actually. He had a llama song that was really good. 
and Yzma had a villain's song, which when you have Eartha Kitt cast in the film, sort of makes sense, because that was something that until this documentary, I couldn't really understand why you had Eartha Kitt in a Disney film, yet she didn't have a singing part. I never understand why villains don't get songs. Well, we're not all you. But I do have to say, I think that this movie works better as an, a non-traditional musical. I mean, there's music in it, but for all intents and purposes, it's not a musical. There's no songs in it that drive the plot forward. There's really just the song for the opening and the ending credits. Right, and those are the only two Sting songs that still exist in the movie. And originally, Sting sang both of them, and he didn't like how he sounded in the Cusco song. He thought he sounded too old. Irony of ironies. Yeah. They go out and get Tom Jones, who's almost 10 years older than Sting, but he does sound younger. And he fit that role of sort of that lounge singer theme song guy. Because I think his actual character's name is theme song guy. Right. And that's the thing, because we do see that guy on screen. Mm -hmm. I can't picture Sting filling that role. Right. And that's, I mean, that's really impressive that he actually took a step back and said, you know, for the greater good of the film, this doesn't make sense. And he was very much conflicted about this movie because he was all about the original story when it was kingdom of the sun and he wanted to continue doing it in spite of the changes but he had like a like a rule a self-proclaimed rule that when he was touring he wasn't writing music and he had to go out on tour and he had to break his own rule to rewrite the songs that he had already spent, I think, like two years writing. Well, that was it. They had to keep extending his contract. Right. And then it conflicted with an album that he was recording. So he was he was very back and forth on it. And in fact, when he saw the finished product of the original version of this film, he wrote a very strongly worded letter to Disney Basically telling them, if you don't change the ending of this movie, I'm pulling out and you can't have my songs. Because the original ending of the movie was that Cusco still built Cusco-topia. Right, he didn't learn the lesson. But not only did he not learn the lesson, which was an issue that Roy Disney uh, had with it as well, instead of putting it on the hilltop he leveled a rainforest and right. put it there. And Sting has fought for the rainforest. He's fought for the indigenous people. He's done a lot of fundraisers. He didn't want to be associated with a movie that, for all intents and purposes, glorified the destruction of the rainforest to put up, as he said, a theme park. And then he took a shot at Disney because he right. said something to the effect of, maybe Disney and I have different opinions of where you should build a theme park. And I was like, ooh. But you, when you're Sting, and really, he held all of the cards here. Well, I mean, you know, Sting is, you know, hardly 
a quiet person when it comes to causes and things that he believes in. Um, but, you know, good on him for, for standing firm and especially in light of what's happening now in the Amazon. I mean, he was way ahead of his time with that. He also didn't like how scaled back the movie became because he was like, well, it's about friendship and family. These are all good things, but the original purpose of the film was to go into a much broader spectrum and it was a lot more spiritual and it was really about the creation of the earth it was more fitting for him and his style yeah so he really didn't love what it became but when all was said and done you can thank sting for the ending of this movie where cusco gets a shack on a hilltop next to pacha and Cusco-topia does not actually exist. Well, we're getting way ahead of ourselves with the end of the movie. Let's let's dial it back to the beginning. Well, we've already given them the plot. I'm saying in terms of wrapping up our our version of this podcast where we are discussing this documentary so that we can now get to discussing the film itself. That's true. I'm we talked about what wasn't, you. but now we're going to talk about what is. Yes, absolutely which I'm excited about because, like I said, my first viewing of this film was, it just wasn't done under happy circumstances. I joked before about you having gone and and had this very, experience. very atypical movie experience. Mine was far from. No, and I can imagine where, you know, I mean, like you really should have gone to the hospital probably. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, after the ice bath, I came down to 102. Okay. But I can imagine where the whole experience left a bad taste in your mouth where, you know, if you have that association with this film, you probably don't want to pick it back up and be reminded of of being that sick. You would think so. But actually, this this movie in the week and I was that I was sick like that for a good four days. I mean, I was sick in total for about a week, but I was that sick for about four days in that entire week. The only thing that I did that actually brought me any sort of joy whatsoever was watching this movie, which, as I pointed out before, was done completely by accident. In fact, I was forced to watch it. Well, for what it's worth, you talk about my cushy theater experience, but I had a similar situation to you, and that's how I've seen all three Lord of the Rings movies. That's rough. Yeah. I just couldn't change the darn channel. I, I couldn't move. Was it all three of them in a row? Mm-hmm. It was a marathon. Ouch. Yeah. What was that, like 14 hours with commercials? I, I don't know. But I think by the end, I was praying for death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, let's, let's get into... I wasn't quite praying for death after watching this movie. Well, that's what I'm saying. You at least got this out of it. Um... Speaking of the music, I love the opening song. Well, before the opening song, this was actually something that I failed to mention in the plot. They do start with a narration. We actually first meet Cusco as a llama. That's right. And I think, well, first, this is one of the rare Disney films that starts with a narration. Um, Off the top of my head, we saw it probably most recently in Aladdin, Mm -hmm. or if you're going in like the chronological timeline of the releases. Um, But it's just interesting when you think of the 
peddler, who I refer to from here on out as the genie in human form, introducing the story of Aladdin versus this, where you meet your leading man, he's in peril. Yeah, the movie starts in the middle of the movie. Right. And I think that that was such a smart way to unpack the story. Number one, because it is such a familiar story, though it was unintentional, this was a way to kind of shake things up. But I feel like just the nature of the story, had they started with a narration like Pacha, for argument's sake, and, you know, they tell it from his point of view where, you know, he's a peasant and his path crosses with the emperor's and you know, it, it shows how he gets to the palace. That's almost, you know, I mentioned it before. That's very much Aladdin. Yep. So to start here, especially with this character who's so sarcastic and rude, he's already dislikable, but now you're setting him back even further and you really have to learn to like him throughout the course of the rest of the film. Absolutely. Because he's not your hero. You, you no. kind of just... You don't like him. That's the thing. He's he's intentionally made so that you don't like him. With very few redeeming qualities. Almost none. Other than his sarcastic sense of humor. Well, I hate to say it, but you laugh at his put-downs. That's, that's his only redeeming quality, is he's funny because he's rude. Exactly. Um, but, as I said before, love the opening song. And I think that that set the table for the character very well because you see he's got his own theme song guy. He dances around the palace. He thinks who he is. Even when he's like, he licks his finger and slicks his eyebrows down. He throws his crown in the air. He catches it on his head. And he's, oh yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's so into himself that it's almost pathetic actually. Right, and I think that that's why this film works better as a non-musical too, because I don't want to hear him sing a song about how vain he is or how much he loves himself. The other thing is, this is the Emperor's new groove, not the Emperor's new song. So I think the smartest thing that they could done, they could have done, although it grieves me to say it because we lost a villain song, was just make this musical numbers at the beginning and end. And Which not exactly, in a traditional sense. Right, and that's exactly what they did. One thing I've always had an issue with is that the whole quote-unquote groove thing, it's done after the first five minutes of the movie. It's a really good point. It's written into the title of the film, but after Piglet gets thrown off of the, the balcony, <laughs> because that's, it's the same voice actor, the groove. It's uncanny. The groove. Don't throw off the groove. <laughs> you don't hear about it again. That's a really good point. And it was never something that really bothered me because this film has so much back and forth and so many hijinks. There, there are just so many other things going on where it really doesn't apply. But you're right; there should be more of it. I mean, there's like there's a little part where he's a llama, where he, it's it's the uh huh uh huh uh huh part. He like moonwalks, but that doesn't count as a dance, right? And that kind of would have been a funny thing to see is that you've got this llama with a penchant for dancing for no reason. And 
the peasant get that gets thrown out the window for bumping into him while he's dancing, and he says, you threw off my groove, and the bodyguard says, you threw off the emperor's groove, and he throws him out the window or off the balcony or whatever it is, and he's talking to Pacha, and he goes, the groove, don't interrupt the groove, the pattern in which he lives his life. So you've set this up that it's going to be a crucial part of not only the film, but of the character. And bye-bye. Just right. never again. And they set it up like it's happened before. Right. And I'm thinking like this is his motivation for conducting himself the way that he does. And it's his motivation for punishing people. Right. He's got a reputation like Oz for not for not, you know, coming to the door. Exactly. The flip side of that is how many times would I need to listen to him talk about his groove before I feel like it was beaten to death and I don't want to hear about it again? Probably not a, Probably not too many more times. If you could have peppered it in two more times throughout the movie, it would have been just enough. Mm. I think partially because that whole line of dialogue, the groove, the groove. It, Spoken by Piglet. It became too much. Yeah, I mean... It didn't need to be an entire thread throughout the film, but yeah, one or two more times sprinkled in would have been great. I'm wondering if it's supposed to be that they named it as such just for a play on words is that he had to change. But they did incorporate the dancing as his thing. So I I don't know. That also might have come into play where there were so many changes to the film that they had to ax some of the they axed the music so there may have been more dancing we don't know well they were so behind schedule that they were rushing and and some of these animators had said they got to the point where the fun and games and the joking and talking over a cup of coffee like that came to an end real fast and it was just hey hey and they they hardly spoke to each other i mean it's it's difficult i've never from my experience in the industry, I've never worked in post-production on a film. I've certainly never done animation, but I've done post-production for television. And I can tell you it's not easy when everybody's working their butt off and everybody's trying to make the story the best that it can possibly be. And even when you take ego out of it, where, you know, because there, there's somebody in every production that just thinks it's their way or the highway and that they've got the perfect vision for what the end result is going to be. Take all of that out of it. It's just very hard with so many cooks in the kitchen. And there have to be to get something like this done. Correct. And, you know, back to what we were talking about before with Sting, uh, you know, piecing out from the project. I can't imagine how hard that must have been because when you're so in it for so long, you want to see it through. You want to see it come to the end. But at the same time, if it's not the film or whatever project it was that you thought you were committing to and it goes that far through so many changes, I kind of get bowing out like that. Sure. Um, In spite of all of the changes that they made, I think that the dialogue in this movie is as snappy and as funny as any Disney animated film that we've seen almost in the history of the company. I I can't think of too many Disney films. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was something that was geared more towards adults, Mm -hmm. the mix of the live action and the animation. We talked about it early on in the show. 
it was, I think, one of our first five episodes, actually, if you want to go back and listen to it. But to me, I feel that the dialogue is sort of similar. It doesn't have quite as much adult humor, but I think it's it's the snarkiness. That's what it is. And it has a penchant for calling itself out, but it's still funny nonetheless. Absolutely. Um, by far, hands down, the most snarky Disney film. I think the only comparison that I could have for dialogue is maybe Buzz Lightyear. Thinking to conversations between him and Woody, it's got that kind of punchy dialogue. Um, but even still, this is like in a class all by itself. Well, the thing with Buzz that makes him funny is it's punchy dialogue. But at least in the first film, he doesn't realize he's a toy. He believes he's a space ranger. Right. And that's and I, where that comedy comes from because he's taking everything extremely literal. Well, I guess that's where I kind of find them similar because you're talking about two characters who believe their own hype. Very true. But that's the difference is that Buzz is not sarcastic. Right. He's just very literal and it's ridiculous. That's where the comedy exists. Right. The comedy in this movie, very different. Yzma has the best dialogue of anybody in this film. Her and Kronk are like the best Disney duo since Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah, I'm not even going to argue with you there. Timon and Pumbaa, Buzz and Woody, Yzma and Kronk. And like the blatant foreshadowing, like when Kronk, when he doesn't actually kill Cusco, and he's like, I hope this doesn't come back to haunt me later. <laughs> Typically speaking, that does not work. But in this case, not only does it work, but it's very funny. Because as I pointed out just a moment ago, this movie calls itself out a lot. He breaks the fourth wall. When, and I mean, that that's the brilliance of this movie, too, is that, like, it, it's not like you're watching a live action where an actor just kind of whips their head and faces the camera. You had to so deliberately draw that in. Yeah. And have him stare the camera down. It's almost as deliberate as the line, the poison, the poison for Cusco, the poison chosen especially to kill Cusco, Cusco's uh, poison. <laughs> that poison. It's... It's one of my favorite lines in the movie, and I recite it more often than not. Yeah, like where I do uh-huh, 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 and can fit that into normal conversation, you will make this poison line fit. I don't know why I keep finding ways to do it. <laughs> or <laughs> <But> should do. <laughs> the best line in the movie, not to jump too far, but jumping basically towards the end of the film is Yzma's cruel irony line where she says she's defining a cruel irony and she looks at Kronk and she goes, like my dependence on you. Yes. Oh my God. It's their relationship is just so brilliant. The chemistry amongst all of the characters and the entire cast is really good. We'll talk about the cast in a few minutes, but I would agree. I don't want to say the chemistry between Pacha and Cusco was forced, but Cusco coming around on Pacha, let's be real, it was predictable. Well, 
it was it just totally took longer to get there than usual. It was totally predictable, but it wasn't just a one-way street where Pasha had to get past Cusco's rudeness. Where this is twofold is that Cusco is, you know, it's not just just that he's this vain guy who's used to running things by himself. It's that he's got trust issues. And I mean, obviously so because Yzma tried to poison him, but he's not willing to take advice from somebody who he believes to be lesser than he is, but he also doesn't 100% trust him. Like when they're... um when the bridge gives out and they're hanging by the vines and uh, Pacha has to reach up and grab one, Cusco believes he's going to leave him hanging and save himself. So that's something I would have liked to see other than Yzma trying to poison him because he didn't know that, obviously. You know, she got away with it because he didn't see it coming. I kind of want to know where those trust issues came from a little bit. I don't, you know, well, I can tell you, I think where the trust issues come from is because Cusco, up to that point, would have never done the same for Pacha. He would have gotten exactly. control of the vine and just let him go. Exactly. I think his trust, I don't think they're trust issues so much as he's always lived in his little Cusco bubble in the palace and he just thinks that everybody thinks the way that he does. It's selfishness. He doesn't realize he has no idea what humanity is. But I do go back with their relationship to Buzz and Woody because they have to learn to work together. Right. Which is exactly what happens in Toy Story so they can get back to Andy's room. Speaking of working together, that entire restaurant scene, it's insane. But I think that makes the movie. It's my favorite scene, hands down. When Kronk jumps into the kitchen and he's Chef Kronk, and Yzma and Cusco are coming in and out of that revolving door. Make cheese my... on the potatoes? No cheese. That's cheese. Cheesy no likey. Yeah. <laughs> on second thought, make my potatoes a salad. Yes. What I like in that scene is when Cusco is in drag, and he goes into the kitchen, and the guy at the counter turns, and he looks at Cusco from behind, and he tur- and then he turns back and he looks at Pacha and he gives him he a gives thumbs him that up. Little, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole setup for that is that there's no pets allowed in the restaurant. That's how Cusco ends up in drag. But that whole scene that that is a scene that's not made for children. Nope. I think it's too fast paced. There's obviously the adult humor, but it's just so well put together. And th- that's the scene that like this movie came so close to folding so many times. Like this is kind of like your, uh, your, your ace in the hole. Like, yeah, just for the sake of, of this scene. Thank God this movie came out. Definitely. And I like how they planted certain things here and there. Like for example, when Cusco takes the poison initially, because towards the end of the movie, he basically takes all of the potions and all of the poisons. The but, poison for Cusco, the yes. poison that's meant for Cusco, that's going to kill Cusco. Yes, Cusco's poison. <laughs> when he takes the first one, and Kronk and Yzma make it look as if they're drinking the cocktails as well. Right, right, right. When Yzma dumps hers, she dumps it in the potted plant next to her. And it cuts over to Cusco, and he grows the ears. When it cuts back to Yzma, 
the plant has now grown a neck and a head of a llama. And I actually didn't notice it. I didn't either. Until my most recent viewing of this movie. Nice cat. I'm I'm so focused on Kronk trying to, like, you know, distract her so that she doesn't drink it. Yeah. And point out, you know, the obvious that he screwed up. Wow, I never noticed that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's that's a great attention to detail. Yeah. The movie just, it like I said, it planted those little things here and there. It was done intelligently. A lot of things you're not going to catch the first time you see this movie. And I also think that because David Spade is how he is, and you either love him or you don't, or you're not really into him. I'm not going to say you hate him. I've never met anybody that hated David Spade. My mother. She would be the first and only. I know people who think that he's great, and I know people who go, eh, his shtick really isn't for me. Because he's got a leading role in this movie, if you're predisposed to not enjoying the film because you're not into him, I would highly encourage watching the movie a second time, a third time. Once you kind of get used to where things are and the pace of the movie and you can kind of get past him because he's actually very good in this movie. Mm-hmm. He was perfect for the part. I, I Both can't, the human and the llama. I can't think of anybody that was more perfect for this part than David Spade. If well, we're going to have to later when we get to our casting choices. Yeah, if if you have a bias against him, you go watch this movie a couple of times, you're going to learn to embrace him. Certainly in this movie, but once you get past that, it's all of the other little things in the movie that'll start to stand out to you, that being one of them. One of the things that does stand out to me, and you mentioned before, which is kind of interesting how dancing was not like a recurring theme throughout. Um, One of the things that is, is Kronk's moral dilemma, and we haven't really hit on that yet with the shoulder angels. Another (laughs) brilliant part of the comedy of this film but at first in the first scene where he has the shoulder angels in there you know i i keep saying shoulder angels one's the angel one's the devil and he calls them shoulder people he again they call it out um you know they're obviously debating over whether or not he should dispose of cusco and he ends up you know his moral compass straightens out and he's actually not going to do it but then through mishap he ends up losing cusco um, and I thought that that was kind of a silly throwaway. Like it was funny and I was like, eh, whatever. But funnily enough, it does come full circle at the end of the film. Yes. Now, this movie has enough comedy where it's very funny. Kronk, in everything that he does, puts the movie over the top. It's no wonder he got a sequel. Yeah, which we act, which admittedly we have yet to see. I just haven't watched a lot of these straight-to-home video sequels. Yeah, because other than Return of Jafar, I feel like there's the potential for a lot of disappointment. And I feel like I've seen a couple of them. The Goofy movies. After the first Goofy movie, I didn't find them to be all that entertaining. And there was something... There was another one that I watched... I don't remember what it was and just not being into it. And do you know there's like five Cinderella sequels? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So I haven't watched Kronk's New Groove, but I might have to. I especially feel like because... if anything's going to break the spell, it'll because I, I, that's it. I could do a whole movie of Kronk easily. 
and they got the entire original cast back. That's the other thing. You're not getting new actors that are voicing it where it stands out to you where it's like, ah, oh, that's not Eartha Kitt. That's not John Goodman. Look, I mean, you're not you're not trying to wrangle the cast of Frozen who knew, you know, after the phenomenon, they were going to have to do a Frozen 2 at some point. And when Disney comes a call in with their check, mm-hmm. they're not going to turn away from it. What what was Eartha Kitt doing? I'm sorry. Well, anyway. Roseanne wasn't back yet. You know, John Goodman, not too tough. Yeah, he was done with his Flintstone movies by that point. Exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, back to what you were saying. It comes around at the end where he, um, where the, the angel looks up into the heavens and goes, from above, the evil shall get their just reward. And he looks up and he sees the chandelier. I mean, I believe that's the line. And he goes, that'll do. And he cuts it down with the rope. And because it's Kronk, it falls down, but there's a big ring in the middle, and it just falls around Yzma, not on Yzma. And then down goes Kronk through the trap door. Another gag that for all intents and purposes should have gotten old but each time they did it it was just as funny as it was the first time that was for whatever reason one of our quotable lines wrong lever (laughs) why do we even have that lever (laughs) and then when Cusco and Pacha go through why do they even have that lever it was really good the uh the other brilliant part of the ending that I love, and this this is really a nod to the screenwriting more than anything else, is as they're doing the snatch and grab to get the llama potion back, there's like 25 vials of potion that she has, and they're all different animals. Or I said llama. The, it's the, uh, well, there is another llama one in there. And he was all excited when he got <laughs> when it. When he finally he realized, got it. Oh, wait a minute, I don't want to be a llama. But it's all these animal potions and the human potion that he needs. So they're doing the snatch and grab. He's got like 25 bottles. And as they're doing this chase sequence, he keeps knocking them back because they've lost track of which one the man potion is. And every time there's an animal it, that he becomes that like really thwarts their escape. Like at one point he turns into a whale. And uh, then Yzma's like, you know, he gets to water and she's like, drain the, the drain the pool or whatever it is that they're in. Um, so it, it's just amazing how many times it shifts in that little sequence. And that's another scene where the movie calls itself out because they go to get the potion and they go lions, tigers and bears. And then she goes, oh, my. And she's got the, the human potion and they go, oh, we can't believe it. How did you beat us back here? And she looks at Kronk and he literally pulls out a map showing that they fell down into a ditch. <laughs> the other right. two went right up to the palace. He goes, by all accounts, it defies all logic. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, well. And they pick up right where they left off. I love Kronk reminds me of like Bert in Mary Poppins and that he's just like everywhere you need him to be. And you don't know what his role really is. He's Other just than into being so many. Her advisor. Well, that's it. Like he's he's her henchman, but like he's also this culinary chef, and you know he just, uh, he's a brilliant character. Yeah, and what was he? A junior chipmunk or a junior squirrel? Squeak, squeaking, squeak, squeaking. Again, didn't get boring and didn't get old for me. That shouldn't be as funny as it is. Yeah, the end of the movie when she drains the water. 
and then they tumble out of the palace. They come through the nose of the... There, there's a face that's sculpted it's on the front of the palace. An ode to Cusco. And they come out the nose. It reminds me of the end of Richie Rich. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, movie calls itself out because right as she goes to get the vial, Kronk, who went through the trap door, then opens another door and knocks her away and goes, what are the odds that I would have come out here? <laughs> Which, after a while, I didn't know if that was the movie just trying to call attention to how coincidental the movies can be or if that was something that was specific to Kronk because it seemed like it kept happening with him specifically. I'm wondering after seeing this, like, I mean, yeah, if this was like a week or so ago, I would have been like, no, no, it's all part of the humor. I'm wondering after seeing this documentary, if Kronk was used to fill in all these holes where they were trying to rework the story and they still didn't have it a hundred percent yet. And like anything coincidental that happened, it's just like, all right, throw Kronk in there and, and have him break the fourth wall or give him, give him an angel and devil and have them argue. Right. You know, it's, it, it, it all works brilliantly, but um, I'm wondering how much of a device he needed to be to get this story done. Maybe. Because he was, I don't think he was in the original plot. No. So he was written in. But, listen, I'm glad they did. Because to me, as good as the movie is, at least for me, he's my favorite part of the movie. He is what makes the movie. I mean, he sings his own theme song for crying out loud. Which, the irony of ironies is that Cusco is watching because he comes in and out of this narration. Right. And he was like, is he singing his own theme song? Irony, he's the one that has a theme song guy. Yes. So I just love how he can't see past the nose of his own face until much later into the movie. So that it actually is smart the way that the movie goes about because it does show character growth. Because mm. when they get to that midway point of the movie, we pick up where we left off with him as a llama in the rain. The, the narration is selfish Cusco going, these are the people that ruined my life. And the Cusco that is the llama in the rain turns and says, you're not fooling anybody, pal. They saw the whole thing. Just leave me alone. Right. So I love that he comes to that realization himself. And when it comes time for him to now be a llama because he's broken off from Pacha, he sort of accepted his fate as a llama and he's sniffing at the grass and he eats it and he's got a mouthful of dirt and he's just so defeated. And Pacha happens to just come back and save the day because Pacha's not going to leave him behind. That's the, I don't think he came back so much as he never left. I... I don't know, because there were a few times where Pacha was ready to ditch him and he would come back to him. At first, it was more in a way of help me help you. He was and trying him, to, yeah. yeah, trying to make him help himself and learn a lesson. And then I think when he realized that he wasn't ready to do that yet, he goes back because he can't leave him hanging. Sure. That's what I was talking about earlier on in the show, that 
I don't think any other movie could have worked this way because it's these characters where you start with the narration and then have it meet in the middle, not exactly like a flashback. And then, you know, you catch up to it and then the rest of the story plays out in real time. Um, that was something really different for Disney to do. And I don't know that it could have worked anywhere else. So, like, it, it just amazes me, again, that after all of the conflict they had trying to get this one off the ground, how structurally this movie's so smart. Yeah, when you think about how they sort of had to rush and they were still making changes, even after they thought they had a completed film, the fact that they were able to get a movie that had a clear beginning, middle, and end, and executed it the way that it did, is really, as you just pointed out, a compliment to the screenwriters, the animators, the actors, everybody that really had a hand in putting this film together. Speaking of the actors, let's talk about the cast. We mentioned David Spade. We talked about how he was perfect. John Goodman was also a great fit as Pacha. Yeah, especially because, you know, you've got this big burly guy. You need somebody with a deep voice, but he's got such like a, a soothing, calming quality about him. I, I think he's great for Pacha. And he brings that fatherly presence because we saw him do it in Roseanne as Dan. Right. So it wasn't totally outside the realm for him to come and fill that role in this movie. Eartha Kitt, I mean, what else do you say? She's a legend. She's and brilliant, yeah. She's, she was so good in this movie, and even in spite of all of the changes, I think she was at first a bit disappointed because Yzma was a more complex character, and again, they simplified her, but Eartha Kitt loved Yzma. And she loved playing her. And it comes out in her performance. Yeah. Watching the documentary, she clearly had a lot of fun when she was recording. She really got into the role. And what's unfortunate is, I think, because as amazing as Yzma is, and I love her as a villain, I think she kind of gets overshadowed by Kronk. And that wasn't the, the case in the initial draft. Speaking of which, I want Patrick Warburton in everything. Well, we get him in Soren. Nice job, pal. <laughs> um, yeah, he's great. At first, when I didn't know who he was, I actually thought it was Adam West because they really? do sound kind of similar. And Adam West was not used in this movie, but they did tap into him for Meet the Robinsons. That's right. So eventually Adam West did get a Disney film, but that's who I thought Kronk was the first time I saw this movie. And I especially thought, oh, how tongue-in-cheek, it's Eartha Kitt, uh, who played Catwoman, and yeah. Adam West, who played Batman. That's really funny. This was right before Patrick Warburton sort of became... He's not by any stretch an A-list actor. But a face that you recognize. But you know him. Yeah. And this was right as he was starting to make that turn into, I hate to say it, it was that guy. Yeah. He was that guy. <laughs> yeah. Right? For a while. Yeah. And eventually that guy turns into something big. Paul Rudd. Yeah. You Perfect want to talk example. about a guy that was that guy? Perfect example. Right? 
Um, but anyway, yeah, I said it before. I think the cast in totality had great chemistry. They all worked together. You could tell that in spite of all the chaos that was getting this movie made, they all had fun. They all took it seriously. I think they all got along very well. If they didn't, they faked it really well. Because every bit of dialogue that comes off in this movie, whether it's an insult or whether it's fatherly advice, it all comes off as being genuine. It's very real. Right. So for a movie where you have a prince that has turned into an animal, the realism in which they speak to each other was always very appealing to me. And I thought that it added to the movie. I thought it felt very authentic. I think that's it. It felt more authentic than it did a Disney movie. Yeah. I think part of that has to do with it not being a princess movie, but like even when you compare it to something like like Hercules or Hunchback, they're still in that vein of like the flowy fairy tale dialogue. This was just more pure comedy. Right. And what makes this one different from those other two is um, Hunchback was based on the book and it's an epic tale that everybody's heard of. Same thing with Hercules. This was not one of those stories. This was not a Pocahontas. This wasn't necessarily a retelling of you know, a Shakespeare play or, or any of the things that you could say, well, Beauty and the Beast was a book and, and Lion King is like this and Aladdin's really this. This was its own thing. You really right. hadn't seen anything like this before. Except for Pixar. Right. Where that's like a completely original concept. But that, it's totally different. It's computers. It's It's supposed to be different. This was also the movie... That was sort of the beginning of the end of the traditional 2D animation, which mm. is a shame because the animation in this movie is phenomenal. I think it's got extraordinarily clean lines, and I love the colors. I love the golds. I love the reds. I love the greens. It's the the background and the sets are so rich and I think that comes from the initial concept of this film being the what is it what was it the kingdom in the sun yes or the kingdom of the sun yeah, one they, of those well, two they, titles yeah Whatever. because they changed the title twice um so I definitely think that had to do with it and they also tapped into you know the culture of the area and the and and the people of the land of Machu Picchu, because that's where this is all supposed to take place. Um, so I think that was really well done. You know, I said it last week that I'm not the biggest fan of Hercules because of the animation and because it feels so disjointed to me. This is what I wish Hercules looked like because the backgrounds are so detailed and that's what I wanted to see them do with Greece. And it's not just that, but like, the backgrounds lend themselves to the story. You know, they play into like when Kronk is initially disposing of the llama and it's got these, like, that's it. It, it looks so realistic, but all the steps are so long and so exaggerated. That's where you get the cartooniness from. And then same thing with the snatch and grab scene. They're all over the palace and you've got these big, 
you know, chunky blocks that they're navigating and they're so, so detailed, but at the same time, obviously it's not realistic because they're like, you know, they're dangling out of the nose. Right. In conclusion, in spite of the fact that I saw this movie for the first time when I was nearly hospitalized and I was forced (laughs) to watch it, in spite of the fact that you lose the entire groove element of this, right at the start of the movie, I still love this movie. I love that it's a straight comedy. Even down to Yzma turning into a kitten rather than (laughs) a huge creature. I love that the movie never really takes itself seriously. I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's a parody of the other Disney films because it's not that, but it's so unique in its tone Mm. and its approach to storytelling that, to me, it stands out on its own. And I think it's a shame that when the movie came out, at least for the theatrical run, it was considered to be a big disappointment. It was the number one selling DVD in the year 2001. The movie got a second life in home video release, which I think is great. But I only feel like now is the movie really starting to get its respect. And I wish that it had gotten it from the start, but I'm glad it's finally getting it now. That's my final review on the film. And I end... And just so that you know, I never went to the hospital. (laughs) I don't think you can necessarily call this a cult classic because I think it's bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. I I definitely think it's only starting to get its due now. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question about it. I really enjoyed this movie the first time I saw it. Uh, it was definitely one that was popular in our household, but it's one that I've grown to love more and more. The more that I watch it, the older I get, it still stays with me. Things that I thought would only be funny to me as a kid are still funny now. Um, you know, and I, I, what you just said before about Yzma turning into the cat, I love that they could have very easily, that's what makes this film so unique. They could have very easily killed off the villain by making her fall because they're obviously up high. And instead they sting us again with having her be this cute little kitten. And then she hits the trampoline. I'm telling you, we didn't order a giant trampoline. (laughs) Well, I wish she would have told me that before I set it up. The movie to me still holds up. I think the comedy holds up. The animation holds up. As I said to you, movies that are that intentional and that convenient, nine times out of ten, for me, don't work. Fail. Yeah. But this one is done so well that it's probably, of all the movies, that is that intentional. And I hate to keep repeating myself, but I don't have a word to describe it better. For all of the films that are so intentional with the way that they conduct themselves... This one is probably the one that did it the best. And I'm not just talking about Disney. I'm talking about period. Yeah, just as far as being so self-aware and so deliberate um, to a point where I think this is going to run into a lot of problems if they do a live action remake. I think you're going to lose a lot of the comedy because it's not going to be as funny seeing people chase each other the way that it is now. 
Um, I think that, and I, I do want to give our picks for the live action cast, but I, I think this cast is so spot on. That's where I really think you're going to have the biggest problem because yeah. some of them are too old to play these characters now. So it's like, what do you do? Yeah. I or especially had... like in David Spade's case, you know, he doesn't look the part of where this film takes place, but he's the perfect voice for it. I can't think of anybody who whose voice is just by nature dripping in sarcasm like that. Yeah. Um, I had a really difficult time. I had a really difficult time. Same. Coming up with casting here. And to be honest with you, I'll give you a couple of names, and even I don't know if any of them are that great. Yeah, no, let's let's talk through this because I have people that I think are, are passable, but I'm not even as passionate about. The the only person in my mind that would be a home run would be Dwayne Johnson as Kronk. Same. I, yeah. I don't see because he's because he's so funny and he's so eccentric. Yeah. But and can he do physical comedy, though? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, he's a wrestler. Sure. Yeah. The, I mean, this guy made his career before he was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. He was the biggest star of sports entertainment. True. So I, that's that's the easiest part of this for me. No, and we know Disney likes him. You know, Moana, Jungle Cruise, I think they're going to keep using him. But yeah, I think that that's, that's the only choice. Mm-hmm. <sighs> they're talking about Taylor Lautner. He's I hate the, it. He's the rumor for Cusco. He could look the part if you're trying to set it you know, in Mach- Machu Picchu, mm-hmm. yeah, he would he would look the part. Yeah, but Bruno that's... Mars, maybe. Oh my God, that's who I thought of too. Okay, so we're very much on the same page here. He he would work. But isn't it funny though that that's who you thought of, and he's not even really an actor. Yeah, because I can't. Th- I literally can't think of an actor who could pull it off but that was that was my initial thought is because Bruno Mars looks the part he can act because I'm thinking when he hosted SNL yeah he was amazing and we know he can dance I'd rather honestly see him do it than Taylor Lautner agreed and then for Yzma I was thinking Susan Sarandon because she does have that high pitchy voice um, and she also in Enchanted, when she comes, you know, out of the storybook and into human form, she kind of looks like her. Like the color yeah. palette is all the same. It's very similar. Susan Sarandon was kind of who I had in mind as well. I don't know. I mean, Helen Mirren is good in everything that she does. Emma Thompson is good. I just don't think they're right in that part, though. And maybe it's because I have her in Enchanted as the precedent. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. I mean, the only other person that I could think of, but I I don't think she's necessarily got the comedy chops to do it, is Angelina Jolie. And that's also just on aesthetic alone because she's Maleficent. But, But she's too young. I mean, you could put makeup on her. Yeah. Um... But uh, yeah, I just 
This I also don't know that this is a movie that needs to get a live action remake. The that's, fact is, in reality, most of them, if not all of them, don't really need it. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the cast is way too on point, but I just I think you're going to lose all the comedy. I agree. But we're interested to know who you guys have, because like I don't even have a clear pacha. I mean, I don't. Maybe you do. I don't. Uh, before I realized how perfect Dwayne Johnson would be for Kronk, I thought of him just because of the sheer size. And I kind of go back and forth because that's the only thing is that Dwayne Johnson is so, you know, he's kind of got that cockiness thing going for it. Like, that's where his humor is, and he's going to have to lose all of that if he's Kronk. Right. But I, I don't know. I mean, is John Goodman too old to do it? At this point, he is. Probably, right? Yeah. Potch is supposed to be like 45 years old, and John uh, Goodman's in his late yeah. 60s now. Um, I got nothing. No, because I, I'm because drawing a blank. The, because the other thing, too, is I don't want to pull from the same Jack Black, Josh Gad, Chris Pratt. You know, like, nothing against any of those actors, but they're all getting pulled into the Disney vacuum already. I think that we kind of need to find, not that Dwayne Johnson isn't, but I feel like we need to find somebody else. Right. But it's also, it's it's just very hard. Like, I've been thinking about it all week, and I still, I'm and still not settled. Well, I started, saying, I started saying it before. If you guys have casting choices, you can let us know on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at Monoreal Radio. News this week. Go listen to Sunday's episode. <laughs> um, yeah, we dropped, for those of you who missed it, we dropped a bonus episode where we did a recap of the D23 Expo. We talked about what was announced. We gave our opinions. And that was just a couple of days ago. There has literally been no news since then. We're probably not going to see news for another few days. I'd be shocked. Like, what else could you possibly have? The only thing maybe that you could talk about is that the D uh, that the uh, Disney plus streaming service has been opened up to D 23 members in a presale where you can be a part of the founders circle and you get $23 a year off. If you sign up for a three year commitment paid in full, um, we didn't do it. And the reason why we didn't do it is because in my opinion, Unless I was getting the pin that said Founder Circle, which you only got if you were at the D23 Expo, to spend $150 today on a service that I can't use for almost three months kind of seems like a lot when the discount is a lousy $23 a year. And people are saying, yeah, but that ends up being one year free. It does if this service were... $100 a year, $125 a year, then to me it's worth it. But for a lousy 23 bucks, I mean that's a gas of tank or that's a that's a that's a tank of gas, I should say, once a week. It's just not enough money for me to jump at it today. Yeah, no. It's it's not enough of an incentive. Right. But again, let us know if you guys signed up. Tell us on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter at Monoreal Radio. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. We're counting down the days because it's almost time for us to book our Fast Passes. Don't forget, we got Monorail with Monoreal coming up in November 
You guys can join us if you're already at the parks. If you didn't plan a trip and you want to join us, Jackie, you can actually help them do that. Uh, yes, get in touch with me sooner rather than later because next year all of the changes that were announced at D23 are going to start in Epcot. Uh, I am pretty confident things are going to start booking fast. So reach out to me either on our social media or you can shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. One more bit of news that oh. we did forget to mention. We have okay. a contest winner. Oh, that's right. I almost forgot. From our one-year anniversary episode where we reviewed Mary Poppins Returns with John Scary of BigFatPanda.com, uh, we did a giveaway of the Little Mermaid Blu-ray DVD combo because that was our first episode. Yes. And... Just to recap, for those of you who wanted to enter, you had to like one of our social media pages, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter. We had contest uh, rules posted. You had to, as I said, like the page, like the post, tag a friend. A lot of people did it, but only one person can win. And that person is Kreider Gal. Congratulations to you. She actually liked the post, tagged a friend, and followed us on two different social media platforms. Therefore, she got two entries. Don't cry foul. I said when we announced the rules you did. that you could get multiple entries if you did it on each of the social media pages. She did it. Kreider Gal, we will be in touch with you shortly to get your shipping information, and we will send it out to you. Again, thank you all for joining us this week. We can't wait to come back next week, and I'm sure we're going to tease this week exactly which movies we're going to review. Yes, I said movies. We're doing a little series here. And, i spoil one more thing. This was actually a user choice. Yes. One of our listeners reached out to us, requested that we do these movies, and we're going to do them for everybody, but really it's just for you. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>